Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am covering Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. Our context is this. In the first ten verses of Galatians, Paul has explained to the Galatians that he received his message alone from Jesus Christ and not from the Jerusalem apostles. He's trying to separate himself from trying to appeal to any authority from Jerusalem because that's where the legalists were coming from. And he's trying to avoid that. He's trying to say, no, my gospel came from Jesus and my gospel didn't have any law in it that you've got to be circumcised in order to get saved. Now, he distanced, himself, he distanced himself from the Jerusalem apostles in that sense, doctrinally. But on the other hand, he pointed out that the Jerusalem apostles, even though they were in Jerusalem, they gave him the right hand of fellowship, agreed to send him to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, showing that they also believed in the gospel of grace and not of law. Now, in Galatians 2, 11 through 24, we're going to see that, unfortunately, Peter got himself back up under the law by supporting Judaizers, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face, and then Paul uses that as a stepping stone to launch into his disquisition on salvation justification by faith, not by the works of the law. So this is a very important section in Galatians 2. So we start in verse 11, Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, that word when is key here because we don't know when this was when Cephas came to Antioch. There's a split of opinion on it. It's uncertain, as John Gill says. Well, here's an option that says that it had that this visit by Peter to Antioch came before the Jerusalem Council, which was roughly AD 50. And you recall the Jerusalem Council said the Gentiles did not have to get circumcised in order to get saved, basically. They had to do a few things to keep the Jews from getting upset socially as a matter of expedience, but as far as a matter of salvation, they did, not, they did not have to get circumcised and keep the law to get saved. Now, those who say this happened before the Jerusalem Council say, well, this makes sense. Peter went up there to Antioch. He, he kowtowed, he hobnobbed with the legalists. Paul got upset with him. Then he comes back to Jerusalem in time for the Jerusalem Council, and there they made their stand against legalism. Peter had learned his lesson. Now, in order to believe that, we have to take verses 11 through 21 out of time order because verses 1 through 10, at least on the majority view, occurred at the Jerusalem Council and Peter gave Paul the right hand of fellowship and everything's hunky-dory and grace is up and legalism is down. And then we get to verse 11 through the next several verses and Peter is already backing out on the decree of grace at the Jerusalem Council. And so to take this view that Cephas and Paul, Peter and Paul, had their opposition before the Jerusalem Council. It means that the verses 11 through 14 have to be out of time order. Because in verses 1 through 10, we have the Jerusalem Council. Then if we have verses 11 through 14, when Peter and Paul had their fight, that would come after the, excuse me, before the Jerusalem Council in time, but after the Jerusalem Council in terms of the text. Well, that happens a lot. Writers will sometimes jump things out of out of context, so that's not impossible. This is, however, the minority view. Let me point out to you that in verse 9, we read this, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Assuming this is at the Jerusalem Council, the majority view, then Peter would see grace that was given to Paul, and then he would give the right hand of fellowship to Paul, and so he would be one in one in unity of mind and thought with Paul the Apostle in the matter of grace, and then all of a sudden we get to verse 11, 12, 13, and 14, and he's not with Paul in the matter of grace and has to get rebuked by Paul. So if you hold that this happened before the Jerusalem Council, this conflict, the incident at Antioch between Peter and Paul, if it happened before the Jerusalem Council, it has to be out of time order when you look at the text. But now the majority of people say that this happened after the Jerusalem Council. If you take verses 1 through 10, and again, that's controversial too. Verses 1 through 10, that's only a majority view that says that that was the Jerusalem Council. Well, I'm going to assume it for right now. If that was the Jerusalem Council, and then the conflict between Paul and Peter happened after the Jerusalem Council, then this is what follows. Well, first of all, we can say the but there tends to indicate this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That but is in contrast with the right hand of fellowship that was given before the Jerusalem Council. And so the conflict came after the Jerusalem Council. So 
that's a fairly strong argument that this conflict took place after the Jerusalem Council. However, there are problems with that view. Here's the first problem. The Jerusalem Council said, freedom, 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 grace, no law. Why would Peter all of a sudden deny that with his very actions? He won't even eat with Gentiles right after the, the council said, freedom, freedom, freedom. And not only that, about nine or ten years earlier, maybe nine years earlier, Peter had preached to Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts 10. He had then gone and amidst opposition, gone back to Jerusalem and said, hey, the Gentiles can get saved without following the law. Why would Peter go back on his gospel of grace that he held for 10 years? Now, that is a problem for that view. So let's look at that. Here's some possible reasons why Peter might have gone back on the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council said there was freedom for the Gentiles, if you remember from Acts at 15. It said the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to keep the law. They don't have to, they can't eat things soaked in blood. They got to stay away from sexual immorality and certain things that they would need to do anyway as, gen, as moral Gentiles and not eating blood and things strangled that would be not do things of the law against the law that would upset the Jews. So it was a matter of expediency and comedy with the Jews that they weren't supposed to do certain things that were in violation of the law. But it was not for salvation. It was very clear, the Jerusalem Council, the Gentiles do not have to keep the law to get saved. So the Jerusalem Council was freedom for Gentiles, but it said nothing about freedom for Jews. I mean, after the Jerusalem Council, one could argue that Jews should not eat with Gentiles. Yeah, the Gentiles have freedom not to be eat shrimp and pork, but the Jews don't have freedom to eat with them while they're eating their shrimp and pork. And that's absolutely true. The Jerusalem Council didn't say anything about freedom for Jews. And so Peter could have thought, well, hey... I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. I'll let them eat the shrimp and the pork, but I'm not going to eat with them. I'm not violating the Jerusalem Council. So he could very well have, this shows that this incident could have come after the Jerusalem Council. And here's some other reason, another reason why Peter could have taken this pro-legalistic type attitude after the grace-proclaiming Jerusalem Council is because Peter was facing extreme pressure from the Judaizers. We know from verse 12 in Galatians 2 that certain men from James came. Now James was leading the conservative wing of Christianity in Jerusalem. Now, James didn't believe you had to be circumcised to get saved, but that's not the same thing as saying that you or just the Jews were willy-nilly free to not keep the law. That's a different story. And James and the conservative wing were all the apostles that were left, all of the Christians that were left in Jerusalem because the rest of the apostles, the Hellenistic Jews and the apostles, had been expelled already. And so all that's left is this strict party that is very solicitous of Jewish opinion, Peter really needed to keep those guys happy. Why? Well, because Jerusalem was the most important church in the world for preaching the gospel. Pilgrims from all over the world came for the holy days in Jerusalem. That's how the gospel spread so rapidly into the Roman Empire and also east, uh, uh, east past Jerusalem, past Israel toward the east. Peter really didn't want to alienate such a power center. Remember, Jerusalem was the Holy Mother Church back then, and these men came from James, and, and Peter's thinking, ooh, boy, this might cause me problems. He was wrong to do so, but it was understandable considering the pressure he was facing. So I think that it makes perfectly good sense to say that Peter had his confrontation with Paul because he didn't eat with the Gentiles. It happened after the Jerusalem Council. We're going to assume that, although I, I realize it's controversial. Now, this incident between Peter and Paul happened in Antioch. Antioch is just north of Jerusalem in Syria, the part of Syria that's on the Mediterranean coast. It was the third leading city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria in northern Egypt. One, two, three, Antioch, big, big important city. Paul set out there on his first, set out from there on his first missionary journey, as we know in Acts 13, first couple of verses, first three verses, and he came back at Acts 14:26. In the church that was Antioch in Acts 13, and from there they sailed back to Antioch in Acts chapter 14. That's the beginning and end of the first missionary journey. So the church at Antioch was important for that reason. It was the first city where the term Christian was used. Jameson Fawcett and Brown calls it the citadel, the citadel of the Christian church. Now notice Paul criticized Peter face to face for what Peter was doing. Face to face. He didn't go behind him. He didn't go behind Peter's back and criticize Peter. And that was admirable, as John Gill says. John Gill goes further and says Paul probably did it in an amicable manner. Ooh, well, maybe. Or it might have been a little stern. Those, those confrontations are very painful. I've had a few of them myself. <sighs> They're not pleasant. And something like this with a big-shot apostle like Peter and a big-shot apostle like Paul, 
one to the Gentiles, one apostle for the Gentiles, and one apostle for the Jews, coming into conflict in front of the whole church. Oh, what a mess. Paul says Peter stood condemned. Why? Because he had given in to pressure from the Judaizers, and it was obvious to everybody. Now, this is really ironic. Peter had himself seen the famous conversion of the Gentiles in Cornelius' house when they all got filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, and got baptized in water. And Peter himself had to fight the Judaizers when he took news of this back to Jerusalem. In Acts 11.2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him. So you see, there were those in the church even back then that said you had to be circumcised to be saved. And they were arguing with Peter. And Peter said, no, 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 no. It, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. It was Jews at the beginning, but now it's Gentiles. And so Peter was used to fighting for freedom from legalism, and here he is caving into it. It's kind of ironic. Now, does this have anything to do with inspiration of the Scriptures because Peter wrote Scripture? Absolutely not. The apostles were not inspired in all their actions, only in their writing. Peter's actions here were not admirable at all. Now, there were two questions concerning the debate at Antioch, two possible options as to what the debate was about. The first option is, could Gentiles be Christians without being circumcised? Now, that had already been settled at the Jerusalem Council, assuming this incident occurred after the Jerusalem Council. That was not an issue. It was clear. Gentiles can be saved without being circumcised. But as again, as I say, the Jerusalem Council might not have already taken place before this incident in Antioch. So if not, then Peter could have been arguing, then, P, then the Judaizers could have been arguing, you need to get circumcised in order to be saved. We don't know. The other option as to what they were arguing about, the Judaizers and Paul, was could Gentile Christians have social intercourse with Jews? Now, this is a different issue. A Judaizer could say, yeah, a Gentile Christian does not have to be circumcised to be saved, but he has no right to fellowship with Jews. So that would be importing the law, not in the area of salvation, but in the area of fellowship. Now, this, of course, would create a huge division in the church. It would make Gentiles second-class Christians. It would be a disaster. Let me read you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown illustrating that point. Quote, the Judaizers, soon after the council had passed the resolutions recognizing the equal rights of the Gentile Christians, repaired to Antioch, the scene of the gathering in of the Gentiles, to witness what to Jews would look so extraordinary, the receiving of men to communion of the church without circumcision. Regarding the proceeding with prejudice, they explained the way the force of the Jerusalem decision and probably also desired to watch whether the Jewish Christians among the Gentiles violated the law, which that decision did not verbally sanction them in doing, though giving the Gentiles latitude. Remember, the Jerusalem Council didn't say that Jews could not keep their law. It just says the Gentiles didn't have to. It didn't say anything about the Jews. So that is possibly what they're arguing about. Well, whatever they're arguing about, Peter, Paul is going to take a completely pro-grace view. He's going to say Gentiles don't have to get circumcised to get saved, and by golly, they have the right to eat with Jews, and in fact, you have no right to exclude their social intercourse with Jews. Good for Paul. Now, this situation was so embarrassing for Peter. He's the first pope, you know, according to the Catholics, that a lot of Catholics, I say some Catholics, I don't know about a lot, have said over the years that this cannot be the same Peter. Adam Clark says many Catholics for 1,500 years have claimed it's a different Cephas, that he was one of the 70 disciples sent out by Jesus. This was to avoid the onus of having the first pope be a tergiversator, a shilly-shallying, compromising, mug-wumping fence-setter. But as Adam Clark says, quote, Yet the most learned of their writers and of their popes believe that St. Peter is meant. So that's a minority Catholic opinion. Most Catholics do believe that Peter screwed up royally here. I don't know how it fits in with their papal infallibility theories. I don't know. I really don't care, actually. Galatians 2.12 For he, Peter regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. This is James, the Lord's brother, who was one of the leading apostles in Jerusalem. However, when they came, he, Peter, withdrew and separated himself because he, Peter, feared those from the circumcision party. And I've already mentioned why he might have feared them, because they had so much clout. Jerusalem was the mother church, so many people getting saved from Jerusalem, and he didn't want to lose that clout. And, he's, and remember, he's one of the leading apostles there, too. And so he had a lot of... A lot of pressure from his home folks. Now, he feared the circumcision party. The circumcision party is basically another way of saying the Judaizers. They were Christians who believed you had to be circumcised to get saved. 
Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this is Paul's first encounter with the party that was to persecute him in every scene of his labors. He was constantly fighting legalism. Peter Feared in Proverbs 29.25 says this, The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Peter didn't trust in the Lord. He feared man, and he got snared, and Paul snared him. Now, it's ironic that Peter, on the contrary, two other times did not compromise. For example, after he preached to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house in Acts 10, he went to Jerusalem, Acts 11. He had to fight the Judaizers in Jerusalem, Acts 11, too. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him. And then, of course, at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and verse 15, Acts 15, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brother, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. He's talking about what he did at, at, at uh, Cornelius' house, and he used that to back up the Jerusalem decree, decree which says Gentiles don't have to get circumcised to get saved. So Peter was very pro-grace at two important times. Acts 11 and Acts 15. Acts 11 before the Jerusalem of Jerusalem elders and then in Acts 15, before the Jerusalem Council. And yet here, he bails out. He compromises with the Judaizers. I have a suggestion here, a speculation. Perhaps Peter believed in justification by faith alone, intellectually and theoretically, but it was hard for him to practice what he believed because he was Jewish to the core. In other words, he didn't walk his talk. Well, that could be. Paul later called him a hypocrite, which is pretty, pretty serious language. Here's what John Gill says about Peter. Quote, he knew better than he acted. His conduct did not agree with the true sentiments of his mind, which he covered and dissembled. Well, that's basically hypocrisy. And which must be very staggering to the believing Gentiles to see so great a man behave in such a manner towards them, as if they were persons not fit to converse with, and as if the observance of Jewish rites and ceremonies was necessary to salvation. In other words, he was a hypocrite, as Paul called him in verse 13. Now, why the difference between when he preached with Cornelius, which I think was 40, 41 or so, and then Jerusalem Council is about 50, and Antioch is either directly after the Jerusalem Council or right before it. So in that 10-year period, he was very pro-grace, and all of a sudden he becomes pro-law. What happened? Well, here's some speculations. It could be that when he was dealing with Cornelius and going back to Jerusalem, and when he was at the Jerusalem Council, he was on his own turf. He was around his friends, his buddies. He felt more secure. But in Antioch, he was a guest in Gentile territory, and then when some of his buddies came from back home, he wasn't as secure anymore because he was with the Gentiles, and so he, he compromised. That could be. It could be having something to do with his character. Peter was sort of mercurial, you know. Remember, he strongly proclaimed to follow Christ, and then he denied him three times. So Peter was quick to talk. Oh, Lord, I see you out there on the boat, on the ocean. I think I'll walk out there to you. You know, yeah, I believe, I believe. Oh, 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 the late waves are coming. I'm sinking. So, you know, Peter is known for being rash and impetuous, and maybe that's what happened. Maybe he was just, he talked real quick in two time, with, at Antioch and Jerusalem Council, but not now. Maybe. Or it could be that his opponents were not as great at Jerusalem in Acts 11 after Cornelius' house, and in Jerusalem in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. There might not be as many Judaizers as in Antioch. There might have been a slew of them, a ton of them in Antioch, and he caved in because of numbers. We don't know. But he did it. Now, these brothers came from James. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't say whether James sent these brothers to cause trouble in Antioch. And if, he, if it, James did, he did, it sure didn't look good for James if that's true. In fact, I don't believe James would do something like that. It could be they came without James's knowledge and says, we are of James. James is our buddy. We appeal to him for authority. I suspect that's what happened. Now, these Gentiles, excuse me, these brothers from James and Peter and Barnabas would not eat with the Gentiles. That eating might have been referring to common meals, or it could be the Lord's Supper. I tend to think it's the Lord's Supper because that makes the actions of separation even more reprehensible. It would make Paul even more upset. You mean you're not going to eat the Lord's Supper with the Gentiles? Come on. John Gill doesn't agree with me on that, but I think that's probably what was going on. It's the Lord's Supper they didn't eat with the Gentiles. Galatians 2.13, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisies. Who were the rest of the Jews? that were carried away with Peter's hypocrisy, that joined Peter's hypocrisy. Well, they were Jewish Christians who were not associated with the circumcision party, the people who believed you had to be circumcised. They were just Jews who believed, hey, you don't have to be circumcised to get saved. In other words, your typical Jewish Christian who was not a Judaizer. 
but they had been led astray by Peter's behavior because they were Jews. They would, and Peter had a lot of clout. He had a lot of gravitas, a lot of reputation, and so he was seducing people. And that that shows illustrates another point. If you are a big shot in the body of Christ, when you screw up, you're going to cause more people to stumble than if you're a nobody. These people were straight till Peter showed up, so their stumbling was on, at Peter's doorstep on his hands. These were Jews who were members of the church at Antioch from the beginning. The Judaizers, James's men, came later. So the original Jews in Antioch, the Jews that were free from the law, they joined the hypocrisy. They wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, and so was Barnabas. Of course, Barnabas was, he was a Jew too, he was a Levite. And this is amazing that Barnabas got carried away, because remember, Barnabas had already been on the first journey, assuming that this incident was after the Jerusalem Council, which was after the first journey. And he had traveled with Paul among the Gentiles. He had heard the debates at the Jerusalem Council. Again, assuming this incident is after the Jerusalem Council. So he had seen Paul operate free from the law. And even if this was this event happened before the Jerusalem Council, Paul had been preaching in Cilicia and in Syria after he left Jerusalem on his first visit. This is in the late 30s. And Barnabas knew him then. Barnabas, in fact, went and got him from Tarsus, carried him to Antioch, and he worked with Bar uh, Paul in Antioch. Paul, Barnabas was very close to Paul. For years he'd been close with Paul in Antioch. Now, isn't that something? You got your right-hand man there, and boom, he bails out on you when the big shot apostle comes from Jerusalem. Now, this shows the extraordinary influence that leading and teaching has, the extraordinary influence that Peter had, even on a strong apostle like Barnabas. This was a disaster. And Paul, bless his heart, he had a lot of guts. He stood up and says, ah, oh, I'm, I'm I ain't going to put up with this. You're, you're getting ready to wreck the church, which they would have. They would have completely wrecked the church. Paul, in one place, I couldn't find the quote to save my neck, but somewhere Paul says, not many should be teachers because you've got to be careful, you know, about who you mislead. Well, here's an example of it. Peter misled a lot. And he ends up calling, well, he says, Barnabas was carried away. Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, and Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And, of course, the implication is that Peter was a hypocrite, too. He doesn't directly call him a hypocrite, but he implies it. You go along with these hypocritical Judaizers, you're a hypocrite. Serious language. Galatians 2.14. Paul continues, But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas, that's Peter, in front of everyone, If you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now there, Paul is saying, Peter, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> you're not walking the talk. You're living like a Gentile, you're eating pork and shrimp, and now you want the Gentiles to not eat pork and shrimp. That's hypocrisy. Peter was living among them by not obeying Jewish customs, and especially dietary ones, and so now he's getting on the Jews and saying they can't eat with Gentiles. He's saying Jews ought to live according to the Jewish law, which did say they couldn't. the Jewish rabbinic law said you couldn't eat with Gentiles, and Peter's going along with that law even though he's eating pork and shrimp. He's a hypocrite. Now, Paul said this in front of everyone. He didn't go behind Peter's back. He said it in front of everyone, and that was admirable, as we said earlier. But the, another interesting question is, why did he not go through the three steps of Matthew 16, which concern church discipline? John Gill answers that by saying this. It was a public offense that Peter had committed. Mark 16 was for private offenses, when you have something against your brother, i.e. a private matter. But this was a public offense that was dragging others down, and, P and Paul had to stop it. Now, that is an interesting question. But I m must point out, Paul might have done the three steps of church discipline. He might have taken Peter before, well, I guess he couldn't take him before Barnabas, could he? could have taken him before some of the leading brothers in Antioch. And Peter says, uh-uh, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. So then Paul could have carried two more witnesses to Peter and said, no, I think you're doing wrong. And Peter could have said, uh-uh, I'm not going to eat with those Gentiles. And so finally we get to the third stage, which is all that's mentioned here in Galatians 2.14. Paul told Cephas in front of everyone to tell it to the church is the third stage. I suspect that's what it is. I don't think Paul would short-circuit what Jesus said about church discipline. Paul continues in verse 15 in Galatians 2. I'm going to read Galatians 2.15 and the first part of 16 because it stops in the middle of a sentence. Galatians 2.15, we who are Jews by birth and not quote-unquote Gentile sinners, verse 16, know that no one is justified by the works of the, law, of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to verse 15. We who are Jews by birth, now we includes Paul and Peter, we are Jews by birth, 
They were born that way, and they're not Gentile sinners. Now, there's no way to understand this verse unless you put air quotes around Gentile sinners, which the Holman Christian Study Bible does, and also the NIV does. Paul is re- using a term that the Jews refer to the Gentiles. They just call them sinners. I don't care, they don't care if they were Mother Teresa. Hey, I don't care if they're the most godly people in the world. The fact that they were Gentiles made them sinners, and so they called them Gentile sinners. A sinner was a Gentile. Paul is not trying to say there's a special class of sinners called Gentiles. There are sinners, and then there's Gentile sinners. He wasn't saying that. He was just using the term that Pharisees used to call Gentiles. Now, when Paul says, we who are Jews, I said he included Peter and Barnabas, also the rest of the Jews at Antioch he could have included. They were Jews by birth because they were born, they were bred, and they were educated as Jews. Now, here's the drift of Paul's argument as he's going to get into it in verse 16. He's, he's going to say this. If even we natural Jews know it's wrong to put the law on Gentiles, and we do know that, obviously Gentile sinners know it's wrong to put law on Gentiles. Well, if even Gentile sinners know it's wrong, by golly, Peter, you ought to know that. Even more so, we Jews by birth know it's wrong to put law on Gentiles. And you're a Jew by birth. You've been converted by grace. You've been preaching it for 10 years. You should know that justification is by faith, not by works. In other words, if Jews who love the law are free, how much more so Gentiles are free? And here you are trying to make them second-class citizens not free. They can't eat with Jews. Verse 16, we Jews by birth, in verse 15, dot, 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 verse 16, know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, that word law is used three times in this one verse, law one, law two, and law three, and All three times in this one verse, Paul is telling us that we are not justified by works of the law. This is fundamental to the gospel. Now, of course, Paul is not denigrating the law itself, as the NIV Study Bible says. We read in Romans 7, 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Well, it's holy because it shows us that we're not holy. The law is holy, we're sinners. So the law can point out sin, but he can't deliver us from sin. So what Paul is doing, he's condemning the misuse of the law, saying that it can make you saved. By keeping you circumcised. That's what the the Judaizers were teaching, and that's an absolute damnable lie. 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, Paul says this, But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. And of course, these Judaizers are not using it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. He's supposed to point out sin for lawless and rebellious people. But once you're a righteous person, once you believe in in Jesus, it ain't for you anymore. It's meant for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for, mother, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. It's not meant for Christians who don't do those things. At least they're not supposed to. They don't do it on a regular basis, let's put it that way. In general, they don't do those things. And he says the law is not meant for righteous persons. But on the other hand, but it's meant for all these un- unrighteous persons. So Paul is saying, he's not saying there's anything wrong with doing works, by the way, works as the fruit of your salvation. He's saying the works as the root of your salvation is an absolute no-no. You're not justified that way. Why is no one justified by the law? Because no one can keep the law. It has to be kept perfectly, and there ain't one human being on this sorry planet that can keep the law. If there would be someone who could, could do it, there would be no need for Christ. Romans 8, 3 says what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh. Flesh means human strength. Human strength. Law is limited because human strength can't keep it. But God did it. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. This is basic gospel stuff, of course. I'm kind of running through it quickly. Now, note that even though we're justified by faith and not by the works of the law, that does, we are justified by faith alone, but we are not justified by faith that is alone. Faith is always accompanied by works, but those works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root. Now, as the word law is used three times in this key verse, the word belief or faith is used. Actually, it's faith, first word, then believe. Belief is the same thing as faith. Belief means, believe means to have faith in. It's the verb form of faith. So we got faith, believed, and faith. Right here in this verse. And there's your contrast. Law on the one hand, no, no. Faith on the other hand, yes, yes. Law, sin, death, unrighteousness. Faith, righteousness, holiness, peace, union with Christ. So three times in this verse, Paul tells us we're justified by faith in Christ. This is the essence of the gospel message. 
Let me read you some scriptures real quick. Romans 3, verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's what I just said. Romans 3, 24. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christians are justified freely. We don't have to pay anything for it. It's free. Grace is free. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is the gift of righteousness. Faith is the method by which the gift is appropriated. By the way, we need to make that distinction. Romans three twenty-seven through 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. Now that expression, law of faith, is an ironic use. There's nothing to, faith has nothing to do with the law, but what he's doing, he's making a parallel between the law of Moses and the law, and another kind of law, a law of faith, another principle, if you will. A principle of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You ain't justified by what you do. I mean, this is everywhere in the scriptures, especially in Paul, Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. There's that contradistinction, that contrast there. The law on the one hand, no righteousness. Faith in Christ, righteousness. The righteousness from God based on Law or based on faith? Well, obviously, the righteousness from God based on faith, not based on law. So this verse that I've just briefly gone over, Galatians 2.16, is a key, key verse in the book of Galatians. It's talking about justification by faith alone. Paul, in mentioning be, being justified here in this verse, let me read it again. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. And he says in the first part of the verse, no one is justified by the works of the law. He's probably... Referring to Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous in your sight. Righteous means justified, just as if you'd never sinned. No one alive is justified, and no one alive is righteous in your sight. Now, Paul says, we have believed in Christ Jesus. He might be referring to we Jews to make his argument stronger. Look, we Jewish Christians believe in Christ. We're not justified by works. And now you're trying to make the Gentiles justified by works when they're not even Jews. They're not even supposed to keep the law. What's the matter with you, Peter? We go to verse 17, Galatians 2. But if we ourselves are also found to be, air quote, quote, unquote, sinners, while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. Now, remember, we ourselves are also found to be sinners. Paul is not saying that the Judaizers are saying that Paul is an actual sinner by letting Jews not be circumcised to get saved. He's using the term in the pharisaical sense of the word. A sinner is someone who's not a Pharisee. So Paul says, if we ourselves are also found to be, quote-unquote, sinners, because we are hobnobbing with Gentiles, and we do that by seeking to be justified by Christ, who says no circumcision is required to be saved, so we are preaching grace alone, justification by faith alone, and if you're going to call us sinners, if, if we're going to be found to be sinners for doing that, well, then, is Christ a promoter of sin? Because Jesus is, is promoting what we're promoting. Jesus himself said you don't need to get saved by keeping works. And that's what we're preaching. We're preaching Jesus' gospel, the gospel that I received in Acts 9, you know, the revelation from heaven. And so, if you're going to tell me that I'm a sinner for preaching what Christ did, well, then, you might as well call Jesus a sinner, too, because he's preaching the same thing I am. Is Christ then a promoter of sin? If, I'm pre if he's preaching the same thing I am, is Christ a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. Paul answers that rhetorical question, so there's no question about what the answer is. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts the air quotes around sinners. The NIV does not. I don't know why. Well, it could be because you could interpret it this way. If we ourselves are also found to be actual sinners, not just Gentiles, but actual sinners by saying that Jews that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised to get saved, if that makes us a sinner, well then, by golly, Jesus is a sinner, a real sinner too, because he says they don't have to get justified. They don't have to get circumcised in order to get justified. Well, either way, we get the point is, Paul identifies himself with Jesus. He's doing the same thing that Jesus does. And so if you're going to call me a sinner, you're going to call Jesus a sinner. And do you really want to do that, you dumb Judaizers? Do you really want to do that? We go to verse 18, Galatians 2. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker of the system he tore down. Of course, is the legal system of Moses used for justification. Paul everywhere taught that you're saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. But now if he's going to go along with the Judaizers and say you have to be circumcised in order to get saved, then he would be rebuilding that Jewish, Judaistic, legalistic system. He's already torn it down. Why would he build it back up again? And if he 
And if he's rebuilding the system by saying it's necessary to have circumcision for salvation, then Paul would show himself to be a lawbreaker. Why? Because he's gone all over the world, all over the Roman world, teaching you don't have to be circumcised to get saved. So therefore, he'd be breaking the law. He would be rebuilding the Jewish legal system, and then he would be breaking that law because he, he's not practicing what he's preaching, if that were the case, which it's not, of course. Now, there's another way you can look at that verse. Paul says, if I rebuild the system, I tore down. In other words, if I reestablish legalism, I show myself to be a lawbreaker because I'm a human being. And I can't keep the law. Yeah, John Gill says that, and that could be what Paul's referring to. But I think it more likely refers to the fact that Paul would be a lawbreaker because he's going around getting people saved, not according to the Jewish system, the legalistic system. And that would make him a lawbreaker according to that, system, that rebuilt legalistic system. Either way, Paul is appealing now to his practice. I'm not a lawbreaker. You wouldn't call me a lawbreaker because I don't circumcise people? Paul was no wussy puss. He was a gutsy guy. Paul is hinting at Peter's conduct here, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, because Paul had, Peter had become a lawbreaker. He built up the Jewish system again by saying you can't eat with Gentiles, and yet he, has, for 10 years, has been eating with Gentiles. He ate with Gentiles at Cornelius' house. He's a lawbreaker, according to this new legalistic system that Peter is proclaiming by his actions. Or Paul could be saying, he could be slapping Peter by saying Peter is a lawbreaker because he can't keep this new law that he says that you can't eat with the Gentiles and all the other legal requirements that Peter couldn't keep because he's a human being, just like anybody else. I don't think so. I think he's appealing to Peter's hypocrisy. You're breaking this legalistic law that you're trying to set up for the Gentiles, Peter. You're breaking it yourself. We go down to verse 19, Galatians 2. For through the law I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. First of all, why did Paul say for through the law because through the law? He's referring back to verse 18. He says, if I rebuild the system I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker, but I'm not build, rebuilding the system I tore down. That's, that legalistic system is still torn down for because through the law I've died to the law. So that's the connection there. Through the law, I have died to the law. Now, what does it mean to die to the law? Well, let's look at some scriptures that shows that the law's past power over us is dead and gone. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. There's our cutting off of our relationship to the law. That means we're dead to the law. And we can now live to God who raises from the dead, we can bear fruit for God. Romans 6, verses 6 through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claim. So we're died to the law. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. So it's died to the law and lived to Christ. Died of the law and lived to Christ. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. If he's not going to die again and we live to Christ, that means we're not going to die again either. Death no longer rules over him. Death no longer rules over us either. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all. Died to sin means he doesn't have any more connection with it and sin has no more power over him because he rose again from the dead. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God, we live to God. Live to God, this means live under the influence of or live in the, the companionship of. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it, it means or lives for God. We live to carry out God's will. So you two consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there you see that constant contrast. Dead to sin, alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. And dead to the law, too. Because being dead to the law means being dead to the sin because the law increases sin in us. It makes us sin when we try to keep it in our flesh. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. So there you go. Death to sin, life to righteousness. Death to the law, life to Christ. There's your contrast. The law kills you. It kills you. You are dead to the law. You have died to the law. After you are dead, the law means nothing to you because you are a dead man. Dead men don't care about anything. They don't care about the law. The law has no power anymore over you because you have died to the law. You can't keep its requirements. You live for God now. And the law can't punish you for not keeping its requirements because you're dead to the law. So now you keep God's commandments. You bear fruit for God. Now Paul says, through the law I have died to the law. 
Now, I'm going to give you some crazy options here, I think, is what that through the law means. Gill and Clark suggest through the doctrines of Christ. Through the doctrines of Christ, I'm dead to the Mosaic law. Using different meaning of the word law there, the law means the law of Christ. I don't think so. Gill and Clark say that nomos, law there, can be put here for a system of doctrine. For the system of doctrine about Jesus, I have died of the law. Uh-uh, I don't think so. Here's another good one. Gil, John Gill says, through the prophets, because law can stand for law and the prophets. So through the prophets, I have died to the law. Acts 10, 1043, all the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Now that's a stretch. That's a real stretch. I don't believe that. Here's another good one. Through the law, through the law of Paul's mind, the principle of grace in his soul made him dead to works of the law. So through the law of my mind, well, Again, this is because the word law can be so ambiguous. It doesn't mean all that. It just means the law of Moses. As John Gill and Adam Clark suggest, and I think quite obviously so. Now, how did you die to the law through the law? Well, the way I look at it is the law, since the law's job is to point out your sin and your filthiness, it kills you. It excites, arouses sin in you. In Romans 7, Paul says it, and so that sin kills you. And that's how you died to the law. But Adam Clark has got another idea. He says that because Jesus died in our stead, in our place, he fulfilled our obligation to the law. So through the law, because Jesus Jesus died because of the law's punishments, that makes us dead to the law because Jesus died for us. Well, that's a little stretch if you ask me. Let me read his quote. In consequence of properly considering the nature and requisitions of the, of the law, I am dead to all hope and expectation of help or salvation from the law and have been obliged to take refuge in the gospel of Christ. Well, that's true, but I just think it's the easiest thing to say. You're dead through the law because the law killed you, because you can't keep it. It's holy. It's just. You're not. It exposes you, and it arouses sin in you when you try to keep it and can't do it. Now, notice that after we die to the law, that doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever the heck we want. We're not antinomians. We live for God. Here's some scriptures that show that life in Christ comes after death to the law. Death to the law, life in Christ. Death to the law, life in Christ. Romans 6, 6 through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our sins, that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may longer, no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, and that means died to the law with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So there's your dying with Christ, and there's your also living with him. I'm going to skip down to verse 11, Romans 6. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's two parts of it. We don't want to emphasize one part or the other. We're dead to sin. That doesn't mean we can dead to the law, which also means we're dead to sin's claim over us, but that does not mean we go out and do whatever we want. We're alive in Christ Jesus to do what he wants, the law of Christ, in other words. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. Christ suffered in the flesh by being nailed on the cross, his physical flesh. That's a, a metaphor for us suffering in our human our human strength, apart from God, that's what flesh means. So we've suffered in that flesh, the part of us that is seduced to sin. We suffered in that. We get that nailed to the cross, and we become finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh in our human life, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So we live, we die in our flesh, but we live to God. And we live for God's will, what he wants, not what we want. Romans 7, 6, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. So we died of the law, so what's the result? We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old letter of the law. So we are dead to the law. We live for God. And then Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. This is a common Pauline idea, if you will. Galatians 5, 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Kill them dead. Kill them dead. I don't want to look at them dirty, half-naked women that pop up on my computer all the darn time when I'm trying to do Bible study, including, I might add, some Bible study sites studying the Bible and then get these ads on there, you know, got half-naked women. It's just unbelievable. But anyway, we crucified the flesh. You don't want to do that anymore. Galatians 6.14. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the world has been crucified to me through the cross. In other words, I don't care anymore about the world because dead men don't care. And I to the world, 
I mean, you get nailed up on a cross, you don't have any goals anymore. You don't have any dreams, desire, lust for money and fame and fortune. Romans 6, 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Crucified with Christ, died with Christ. Romans 7, 6, but now we have been released from the law, from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old letter of the law. We have died, we've been crucified with Christ. Philippians 3.10, my goal is to know him and the power of his re resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. In other words, being dead just like he is. Now, crucified and died, I've emphasized that pretty much. How does that comport with the idea that the old man is fighting the new man? Because that means the old man's still alive. Does all, does all those verses I read, does it sound like the old man's alive? The old man is dead, folks. What we're fighting now is what the Bible calls the flesh. It's the sin principle in us that pulls us to sin, but it is not part of our essential human nature. The new man, his essential nature is holiness, sanctification, Jesus, born again by the Spirit of God. That's who we are. And to get sanctified, you live out your life according to who you are. And, of course, you're hindered by the flesh that keeps you from living out your natural uh, spiritual impulses. But the Scripture clearly states here, as I said, you're dead to those fleshly impulses. You kill them. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, Paul said in Romans chapter 8. We go to verse 20, Galatians 2. Of course, a very famous verse here. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now here we have the exchange life, if you will. It's not me that's living. It's Christ living in me. I no longer live means that my old man ain't living anymore, and I'm not living in, by my flesh, but it's Jesus who lives in me. And that's the secret. you having trouble with some kind of temptation, some kind of fear because of the coronavirus, and you know you're not supposed to fear. Jesus lives in you. How about asking him, Jesus, uh, how about take control of my emotions here? I don't like what's going on. You know, everybody's saying the world's going to hell, and we're all going to die. Well, how about Jesus, I know that's not you. How about you live in me? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Some translations have it, or the King James has it, the King of the Son of God. Holman Christian Study Bible has in the Son of God. King James has of the Son of God. The translation does make a difference. I had a, uh, an acquaintance one time who was a Bible teacher who loved to talk about Christ in him, the hope of glory, Christ in you. And he always said it should be, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Because it's Christ living in me, and so it's his faithfulness to God that helps me live. Because I'm living... He's, I'm living his life. And so his faithfulness is what's going to save me because he's, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's, he's not going to let me down. I live by faith. I live by the Son of God's faith, his faith, his faithfulness to me. That's how I live. But if you take it, I live by faith in the Son of God, that means that it's your faith that attaches itself to the external object who is Jesus. Well, then it's sort of relying on your faith, which is not quite as strong as Jesus, Jesus' faith, Jesus' faithfulness living in you. So I kind of tend to agree with the King James there as the faith of the Son of God. And Jesus is said by Paul to love him and gave himself for him. Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And remember, love is not feeling. Love is action. I can't say that enough. Jesus did a lot of action. He went up on the cross and suffered horribly for you and me. The absolute essence of the gospel. Let's talk about this giving how Christ gave himself for me. Galatians 1.4 Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. 1 Timothy 2.6 Who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Titus 2.14 He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. He gave himself, and yet most of the world wants to ignore him. Ah, he's just a good teacher. He's just an historical figure. He didn't exist. His Bible's full of errors. You know, on and on and on. It remind me of people walking through a, a meadow that's strewn with gold and silver at the bottom, and they just grind it under the dirt, grind it under the miry clay, because they're just too lazy or too arrogant to reach down and pick up the silver and the gold, the treasure. And that's what people are doing. Jesus is available there, but no, you know, they got something else better to do. So we no longer live i no longer live that means your old man no longer lives because it's dead or it means your flesh no longer lives you're no longer dominated by the lust of the world your house your car your retirement account your 401k which now in the coronavirus time is now a 201k 
Gong, 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 sinking like a rock. Well, we're not dominated by cares about that or about fame. Oh, I wish people knew I was a big shot. I had big shot celebrity preachers, same thing. as worldly people who want to be big shot athletes, big shot movie stars. Not worried about my career, the, having the perfect family or my social status. None of that matters when you are dead to Christ. Uh, de- excuse me, dead to the law and living to Christ. Because it's no longer you that's living now. It's Christ living in you. And guess what? Jesus don't really care about how big a house you live in or about how fancy your car is or how big your retirement account is or how famous you are or how successful your career is or whether you have the perfect family or not, or how high your social status is. His main job is not all those external things. Those are merely means to his end, which is to conform you to the image of Christ. He called you. He justified you. He sanctified you. And he glorifies you. That's until you're all completely transformed to the image of Christ. That's the main thing. All this other stuff, I'm not saying they're not important. Of course they are. I mean, Jesus himself said, I'm going to give you houses and lands if you give yourself up for him. So it's important to him, but only in a penultimate sense. It's not what you're really living for. You're living for Jesus, and then you let him give you all that other stuff. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all that other stuff will be added unto you. But you seek the house and the car first. Lots of luck on that one. Christ lives in me, Paul says in verse 20. John Gill describes that living this way, quote, he was formed in his soul. Christ was formed in Paul's soul, dwelt in his heart, was united to him, was one with him, whence all vital principles and vital actions sprung, and all the communion and comforts of a spiritual life flowed. We go now to verse 21 of Galatians 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Of course, when he says, I don't set aside the grace of God, he's referring to Peter, who is setting aside, and Barnabas, who is setting aside the grace of God by saying those Jewish Christians have got to conform to the Jewish law by not eating with Gentiles. He's not setting aside the grace of God, Paul says, because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Well, you know, if you can get righteous by, by keeping the law, what do you need Jesus' death for? It was a complete waste of time. And so Paul puts his fiery denunciation on legalism here, and he does a great job of it. Hope you enjoyed listening to this. Hope you listen to the next audio. In verse in chapter 3, we're going to discuss the first 14 verses in which Paul continues his discussion of the contrast between faith and works of the law. There's going to be a subsidiary issue here. Is, is Paul talking about faith for justification alone, or is he talking about faith for sanctification too? We'll get into a little bit of covenant theology, new covenant theology controversy. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.